Welcome to the Northern California Cornet podcast series. I'm Melissa Pacey with HGA Architects and Engineers and co-chair of the Young Leader Group. Very excited to be here tonight for the membership drive for the Young Leader Group. And I've got with me tonight Adam Price from Dome Construction. Adam, we're really excited about the Building Technologies panel tonight. Could you tell us a little bit about each of the panelists and why they were chosen? Absolutely, yeah. So um, this panel we're really excited about um, specifically because of how diverse I think um, the group is. The panelists themselves are Hao Ko, who is a studio director and principal with Gensler Architects. Um, Kunal Desai, who is the head of facilities programs engineering for Google. Um, Grant Craig, who is an associate with PAE Consulting, um, and Matt Mako, who is the founder of Stoke. Uh, and last but not least, we have uh, Miles Garber, who is the moderator, and he is with Polaris Pacific. So, Adam, I really got a lot out of tonight's program. Um, I'm really excited to take kind of all of these things back with me. Could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, why this is important for listeners? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's impactful on a couple different levels. Um, one, because it's always great for our Cornet young leaders to be hearing about what's going on in the industry. And two, really to open up the conversation on where we see design, uh, sustainability, um, facilities management going in the future. I know it's something that, that people are always interested in. And, and I think our, our panelists are really on the cutting edge of those particular topics. Young leaders and uh, future leaders, senior leaders, everyone really in, in the industry, including um, those outside of the Cornet Young Leaders Group um, will find the topics interesting, really because the the panelists themselves are all involved in pushing the and raising the bar really on our understanding of design and sustainability and facilities management um, and where it's going in the industry and, and how we can be more sustainable and and think really um, holistically about productivity for for. Um, for our teammates and our colleagues. So I think that's why um, it was such a great conversation and, and I hope everyone enjoys it. So thank you so much for everyone that's here because I know the rain did not make it easy. So we really appreciate everyone who was able to make it. Uh, today's event is the membership drive for the Young Leader Group. And I am currently the co-chair of that group. So I wanted to introduce kind of what we do and um, why you might be interested in joining. I wanted to start off by asking all of the young leaders to please stand up. <laughs> so if anyone has any questions or wants to find out kind of like the real ins and outs of the young leaders, go find one of the people that just stood up and they can kind of tell you about their experience. So there are some stats about uh, Cornet in general, but the reason that we formed the Young Leader Group was to give young leaders an outlet to mingle with each other kind of without the intimidation factor of having the senior leaders around. Uh, sorry, senior leaders who are in the room. <laughs> but as you can see, we strategically invite them to events so that you guys have an opportunity to mingle with them and they have an opportunity to meet you and know more about you as well. Um, within the Young Leader Group, we've got a series of different kind of subcommittees so that you can kind of get incorporated into things like membership who put on this event tonight. We have a programs committee that works on putting together programs for us, um, special events. We do um, mixers with the senior leaders, uh, mixers with just ourselves. Um, 
We've got Lunch with a Leader, which is a fun program where we uh, have one of the senior leaders come in and we just literally pepper them with questions for the entire lunch hour. So lots of different outlets to get involved if you're interested. Again, find one of the people you saw standing and they can tell you more about it. I'm very excited to introduce Robert Teed. He's going to tell you a little bit about his involvement in Cornet and um, the things that it has benefited him throughout his career. Thank you. Uh, so show of hands, how many people swam here tonight? Yeah, uh, yeah there you go. Uh, man, talk about that rain. I drove up from the Silicon Valley and the rain was just crazy. And the potholes, oh my gosh. So um, thanks for having me. Thanks for having an old guy here. Uh, there's a couple of old folks in the room. Oh, there's one back there. Um, so I, you know, I am currently the head of real estate for ServiceNow, and then I'm also the co-chair of CAP, which is an apprentice program, that, uh, the intern program that we do through NorCal. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And I think there was supposed to be some of the CAP students here tonight, but I don't see any of them. Um, and so I'll talk a little bit about CAP, I'll talk about my history, and then I'll do a pitch on Cornet, and I'll be quick. So um, CAP, just for everybody, it's uh, the uh, internship program that we run in NorCal. And what we do is we take students from UC Berkeley that are interested in corporate real estate or in real estate in general, and we place them with host companies that are members of the Cornet family somehow, some way. And we do that for summer internships. So what we're going to try to do, and actually we were just chatting about this earlier, is build a bridge between the interns coming into Cornet and the young leader community. So some of you may end up as buddies. Uh, with some of the interns, so um, really would appreciate building that bridge, and it's a great group of kids, and some of the folks actually stay in for numbers of years, so we've got a lot of interns that are great success stories. So CAP, that's my pitch on CAP. Um, my background with Cornet, I joined in 2002, so I've got a fairly long history with uh, Cornet. Uh, I earned my MCR, if, if folks know what that is, the current Cornet members might, but others, uh, it's the Master Corporate Real Estate designation that Cornet offers. Uh, I did that in 2007, and then I joined the leadership team in 2013 as the CAP uh, co-chair. So I've done different things in Cornet, and what I'd say during that entire period, it's all about being active, uh, being an active member, and really sort of taking advantage of all the benefits that Cornet has, which I will pitch to you. So those of you that aren't Cornet members, really the big pitch uh, that I'd give you is the network. It is just a really powerful network of folks, either in Northern, <coughs> excuse me, Northern California, which is this chapter, or even globally. When you think about uh, some of the summits and things that we do and the membership makeup of, of Cornet, it's just a really amazing network. And it's one that I've leveraged throughout my career. And anybody that joins would be doing the exact same thing and get, get a ton of benefit out of it. Um, an example, I think, is I took some of the interns to our uh, January uh, chapter meeting. And in introducing them during the social hour, I was able to introduce them to people from every discipline across corporate real estate, whether it's uh, attorneys or designers or brokers or end users like myself. We were able to meet every single discipline across the, the corporate real estate landscape. And I think that's really unique to our organization. You're not going to see that in, in lots of other organizations. They're very verticalized. Um, so the network, that is the big pitch worth the cost of admission, and I would say, if anything, that's the hugest benefit that you're going to get out of uh, Cornet, but there's lots of other things. Our learning platform, it's, it's amazing, and I'm a student of the learning platform, um, 
It's, it's one of those things that we do organically as an organization, so we don't outsource it. We develop all of our own content, and we deliver all of the training and development uh, ourselves. So the programs like we do at the chapter level, that's all done internally and developed. The MCR program and the SLCR, which are some of the designations, that's all developed in-house as well and delivered in-house by experts across the organization. So why I like that is that means that everything you learn is practical. Everything you learn is things that you can leave that session or that class and apply right away. It's not highly academic, even though there's a piece of that. It's really practical and relevant uh, material. So anybody that's done you know, Cornet training, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I would say growth uh, is also a big benefit. And what I love about the growth story for the, the members of Cornet, you can start as an intern, which is, you know, really haven't even figured out your career yet. And you can last in Cornet all the way through your career and do things as a senior leader and folks that are even starting to phase out of their careers are still giving back to the community of Cornet. And so there really is offerings throughout uh, the entire life cycle of your career in, in Cornet. And again, I think that's unique to our organization. I'm not sure you're gonna see that in lots of other organizations. And then lastly, it's the, the belong story, which is, and it kind of goes with the networking piece, but it is this kind of harmonized community that is focused on the built environment and the workplace. And when you go to these types of events, which is, this is amazing, or if you go to our chapter events, or you go to the summits, you're gonna find groups in, of people that are just there, all for the built environment and making the workplace better. And it's really a unique experience because everybody's kind of rowing in the same direction, solving the same problems, but they're solving them from different lenses. Again, architecture and legal, et cetera, different lenses, but all solving the same problems. And that's really cool. It's pretty unique in our, uh, in our organization. So that's my pitch. Please join. Um, and, it, um, and that's it. So I'll turn it back. And I'm here uh, afterwards. So if anybody wants to chat about CAP or anything else, um, hit me up. Great. Thanks, Robert. So I am very excited to announce our, uh, <laughs> our moderator for this evening, Miles Garber. And the topic will be building technologies. And I'm going to turn it over. Oh, it's back on. <laughs> Thanks, Melissa. Um, my name is Miles Garber, and I'm the Vice President of Research at Polaris Pacific. Just a quick show of hands. How many are you familiar with Polaris Pacific? I know you're mostly office folks, so just want to... Okay. So for those of you that are unaware, um, Polaris Pacific is the largest brokerage firm for new condos. So basically, our model works where we don't own the condo project, but we have the exclusive right to sell and market uh, new condo projects. So at any given time, we'll have about a dozen projects here in the Bay Area, and we keep growing throughout the West Coast. We have uh, projects right now in Los Angeles, San Diego, just got a project in Maui, which I'm really excited about, uh, and we have one in Scottsdale as well, and then soon to open one in Bellevue, Washington. Um, I don't want to go into too much depth on each of our projects, but I thought I'd highlight just two of our projects that we're selling currently right now in the city. Um, the first of which is Lumina, and the second is the Pacific. So I don't know if there's a design. So this is the Pacific right here, and I just want to give some really quick stats about it. Um, so the Pacific was an office to condominium conversion. And it was formerly the University of Pacific uh, Dagoni Dental School. And they moved down to Soma and vacated a, an office building. And it got converted to really, really, really high-end uh, condominiums. 
And it was in total uh, 65 condominiums here in this structure and then an additional uh, 11 new townhomes wrapping the building. Um, one sort of interesting fact, this is the first condo project built in Pack Heights proper since 1978. So it's, it's really, really rare. Uh, it's nine stories, sits at the top of Pack Heights. And another really interesting fact and in kind of where we are in the market, um, we've sold two penthouses uh, in the buildings for roughly 3,800 square foot uh, for a 3,000 square foot cold shell. So nothing in it. Um, we, reason why we do that is at that wealth level, if we put in cabinetry, we put in other kitchen appliances, they buy it, and the next thing, the next day, they rip it all out and build it, you know, everything in their own way. So we try to just keep it at the shell space. We still have one penthouse left there, and what we're doing, and kind of ties into the conversation tonight, is we're using Oculus Rift, and potential buyers are coming in and kind of envisioning what their space would look like and trying different layouts and other stuff before committing uh, to the purchase. Uh, and the next one is, uh, and this is a project the developer was uh, Truemark Urban, and then the main money was uh, Hillwood, uh, Ross Pearl Jr.'s uh, firm out of Texas. Uh, I don't know if we have a rendering at all of Lumina, but if, if not, I can go on about that. Far side, okay. Uh, different tower, okay. <laughs> no worries. So I'm sure you guys have seen it from uh, the Bay Bridge, but it's two towers and, and two podium towers, and it comes with about 40,000 square feet of amenity space. Um, and one thing that's kind of cool as we, again, talk about you know, new building technologies is we sold most of the building in pre-sale mode about 24 months before anyone would ever move into the building. And what we did, we built a $3 million sales center a block away from the project. And we built a full build out of a two bedroom unit. And what was unique is we work with a firm that does a lot of the billboard spaces for Coca-Cola. And they basically had a projection screen in that model unit. And you could see what a view would look like from basically any uh, floor in the two towers. So if you wanted to see what the 40th floor west-facing view would look like, you could be in that unit and see that view, which was kind of a different thing and nothing that had been done before in, in the, you know, the Bay Area residential space. So that helped a lot. And we were able to sell most of the uh, project in, in pre-sale mode. We're just kind of left right now with real upper end inventory in one of the towers, one of which is a, a penthouse listed for $40 million. So if you're interested at all, let me know after this discussion. <laughs> but that's actually, it's, it's a really like a combination, you could in theory combine units to get to that. So we most likely will end up splitting it up into smaller, smaller uh, units. It's, yeah, much cheaper to do it <laughs> that way. Um, so it's a nice a continuation of a series that began uh, last year. Um, and tonight we're really focusing on building technologies um, from a host of different fields, uh, real estate, construction management, design, and engineering. And tonight we have four panelists. Um, the first is uh, Matt Mako, the founder of Stock. Uh, Hao Ko, the principal and studio director at Gensler. Kanal Desai, engineering program manager at Google and Grant Craig, uh, Associate Principal at PAC Consulting Engineers. So I think what we'll do is have each of the panelists come up now and do sort of a quick intro about their background, and then we'll go into questions from there.
I am uh, Grant Craig. I uh, work for PAE Engineers in San Francisco. Um, my accent's Scottish, and if you don't understand what I'm saying, sorry about that. Um, I, uh, I've been in this industry for about 18 years now, and uh, he started off in the UK and moved here 2005. Um, and since then, I've been working in a lot of uh, high-end sustainable projects as a mechanical engineer. Um, I have the pleasure of working on a number of uh, commercial properties, both uh, you know ground up and tenant improvement work. Uh, that that has really taken me all over the world in the sense that I've worked on some really cool buildings in Asia, uh, super tall towers. Worked on a lot of projects in the Bay Area as well. I also kind of specialise in um, high rise residential projects as well, uh, and have a lot of that work right now in uh, in the Bay Area. Uh, one of the unique things about PAE and my career, it's kind of overlapped, is that uh, we really focus on sustainable engineering. A lot of what we are, we're doing right now in the marketplace is, uh, is kind of trying out new technologies and moving, trying to move the dial in the industry forward. Uh, so we, we get to work with a lot of cool clients, um, Google with Canal actually, and others, uh, others as well who are who are more, uh, more likely to be interested in kind of moving the needle with us. So. Um, that's a bit about me, and uh, yeah, I'm really happy to be here tonight, so thank you. Hi, uh, I'm Hal Ko. I am a design principal uh, at Gensler. Um, so my background, I'm an architect, and so I help run, um, also running um, the architecture studio uh, back at uh, the office. We have about a group of uh, 35 in my group, total about 70 architects in total. Uh, we, my background is really in office buildings, uh, whether it's developer spec buildings all the way to built-to-suit uh, headquarters. So I think one of the projects I'll be talking about here is a headquarters building did for a PNC bank. Uh, locally here, I'm working on the headquarters for NVIDIA down in Santa Clara. It's the large half million square feet on two floors. Um, that's uh, finishing up hopefully sometime this fall. Um, you know, I think uh, this is... Uh, uh, you know, Gensler has been around for a while. Um, we've, we're a big, uh, big, big office. Maybe that's an understatement, but uh, I would say our uh, buildings group is a relatively new one. So I've been with the firm for about 13 years um, and been building the portfolio uh, from the first day of my job working on the Shanghai Tower. That was a blank piece of paper at the time. So that's the second tallest building in the world all the way to the projects that we have now. So that's it. Like, I wish I could say I worked on the Shanghai Tower. <laughs> um, Matt Mako uh, Stoke moved out here about nine years ago to, to start this organization um, as an alternative to the current existing real estate services business model. Um, we were uh, deeply focused and invested in sustainability. Uh, I grew up as a professional ski racer um, and have a passion for the outdoors and, and a passion for real estate as well and, and kind of uh, blended those, those two things into um, an organization. And um, uh, we're uh, structured uh, to currently at least uh, with three kind of different core areas we focus on. Uh, one is, is real estate and sustainability strategy for, for large organizations. Uh, another one is project and construction management services in which we help um, clients deliver exceptional spaces. And, and the other group we have is a sustainable buildings group, uh, uh, which is what we've been doing for a long time now, which is green building consulting on some of the most iconic projects, uh, certainly in the Bay Area, Salesforce Tower, the Golden State Warriors project, uh, AC2, the, the new 
big uh, spaceship that Apple's building, if you haven't seen that. Um, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that, and, uh, and certainly, uh, hopefully, uh, my career transition as being a newbie to the Bay Area, uh, certainly being a 25-year-old young, young leader trying to uh, make my way into this industry and now um, balding out, as I like to say. <laughs> um, name is Kunal Desai. I'm with Google. Um, involved in the facilities engineering group, uh, or call it uh, the engineering programs group, where um, sort of designing and building the next generation buildings. Um, uh, so there were. That the philosophies uh, that, that we really believe in is, is sustainability, zero carbon footprint, and doing most importantly what is right, what is right for the community, what is right for the environment. So uh, our engineering also heavily focuses on those ideas. Um, right now, uh, we are doing currently uh, not only engineering design, but we also maintain those buildings. So that's the same group. We have about 13 million square foot just between San Francisco and San Jose. Uh, so that's sort of uh, enough for our team to do work at. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's where we stay. Um, and uh, yeah, I uh, would love to hear some new ideas. Would love to uh, see what I can share with you guys. Um, engineering is just one piece of it, but um, when you're engineering, we need everybody. We need um, you know, good architecture. We need uh, good sustainable practices. We need good engineering. So it's, it's sort of um, a mix, if you will. So it's, uh, uh, our strategy is always to see how and what best we can harness, and that sort of takes us forward. Um, I'm sure you don't need to know anything about my company, so I'm just going to talk about my role. Thanks. Thank you, panelists. Matt, why don't you start us off and describe how Stoke is using different technologies to bring more efficiency to buildings? Um, I would say that the technology... Uh, advancement uh, can be a liability for a lot of organizations. Um, and in the 10 years I've been in the Bay Area here, uh, I've seen a lot of technologies kind of um, wane and wax in terms of their uh, viability. Um, certainly a lot of organizations in the Bay Area go in and out of business um, fairly frequently. Um, but a couple of things have been kind of systemic trends, and uh, I think that they're not going away uh, anytime soon. Um, one is electrochromatic gla glazing, or um, you know, the, the glazing that kind of uh, allows for, for you to control um, the facade. And I think that that'll only extend further and further into building integrated photovoltaics in the very near future. Uh, we're seeing um, more and more uh, clients look to try to spec that as both a cost-saving measure uh, on their interior build-outs, but also as potentially an energy, energy generation um, piece. Um, we, the other piece that I would say is, is definitely not going anywhere, and it kind of concerns, I think it should concern a lot of the folks on the panel here, is the manufacturing of buildings. Um, for a variety of reasons, uh, including um, union labor being, being one of the, the major drivers here and the cost of labor and the cost of construction, uh, we're seeing more and more off-site built uh, units. Uh, we're looking, uh, one of the largest retailers in the world is looking to do potentially off-site built um, uh, retail units. Uh, certainly uh, have a variety of multifamily um, uh, vent, uh, clients at least that are delivering uh, basically modular modular units 
uh, and then you know with the full integrated package of design and engineering I mean, literally the table and chairs is is in the unit coming you know off the truck and being delivered on site um, and I don't see that changing at all and most recently uh, we got a, a venture capital client uh, who th thinks that they can uh, basically redesign the city of the future um, and they think they can do it better than any urban planner can do and they think they can they can do it better and more technology enabled than than any city can um, and with that comes a massive push towards reaching economies of scale in delivering the the goods, the necessities, the physical necessities associated with delivering the built environment. So, um, technology-wise, I mean, more more specifically, Miles, to answer your question, um, I I, abs I think that that the the forefront of our industry is uh, going to happen with what's happening in the te technology space with the the offsite uh, manufacturing delivery of of building components uh, and certainly entire um, you know kind of systems architecture just as we've seen within the automobile industry cool thank you how uh, you designed uh, large buildings all over the world how have you seen these technologies change over the years I guess it's mine yeah um, <laughs> so I, I would say I, it's interesting to hear um, uh, what Matt was saying I think for us I think what's changed a lot is I think a, a lot of focus on experience uh, or the human experience and how that ties in um, you know I, I we when we did the PNC tower you know it's when the the client had asked at the time hey can we design the world's greenest high-rise and and I was, we were bombarded with what I was telling people. It's like alphabet soup, right? You get just like, it's always like units. And it's like, I couldn't really figure out what that meant in terms of what is that, how is that, how is a person gonna feel in that space? So what I'm really proud about that building was that we really focused on thinking about that experience first and let the energy aspects come later. So um, the technology I see that evolving that are really cool are related to that in terms of uh, from a human experience standpoint so I was um, telling Matt earlier you know the project at Nvidia because they are uh, very much a platform for uh, AI or artificial intelligence they're really looking at a lot of sensor technology now to really just create a building where the CEO will say hey look you know what I mean I want to be able to go in a conference room when I go in the conference room knows it's me and the, the presentation's teed up, they'll know who our attendees are, and if my CFO's not there, the building will ping her and tell her that she's late, right? I mean, it's all there. And unfortunately, in our industry, we have all these things, but nothing talks to each other. So literally, they're going out and they're just creating it on their own right now. So it's interesting to see, it's, I think we're on that cusp right now. That, and I think those are things that, to me, are, get me excited about you know, the, um, technology. Great. Grant, same question I just posed to Hal. Yeah, so not so much a new technology as, as an older one that has hit the forefront now, which is uh, photovoltaic. We are, um, we are now starting to use it in buildings in a, a much more serious way. We are, the cost of photovoltaic has went down 50% in five years. Its efficiency has been up about close to 25%. So when you start to look at how we design buildings, and, and how can testament to this is that in the past, we would look at a building and say, how do we reduce demand? So we demand, with all the MEP system gets reduced, we look at the facade of the building, we, we, we try to reduce demand. Um, but now, with construction costs as high as they are, especially in the Bay Area, it, when you've got a technology that, you know, three, it's roughly three, three and a half bucks a square foot, uh, a watt, sorry, I should say, for a PV now, 
you are starting to, to get to the point where you're seeing more buildings integrate PV, uh, easily done in the roof, what we, we mentioned there about um, facades as well, to the point where it's not this uh, exorbitant cost to the, to the project and it's giving a lot of benefits in energy, which is required by code and other things. Where we're nervous about that technology going forward is that we're starting to see a lot of buildings go up that are you know, average construction. They're not low energy, they're not particularly sustainable, and then they're putting a lot of PV on the roof to kind of make up for that. And that's not really where we want the industry to go. Um, but with the combination of those efforts, it could really go, go much further. Um, you know, we're seeing that. The other technology that we're using right now and we're trying to develop further at PAE is, um, uh, it's kind of in tandem with uh, PV, is PV produces uh, DC power. Everything that you use in this building to some extent, TVs, computers, phones, everything's DC power, yet we choose to distribute power in AC. So every time you go to the back of a television, there's a transformer that's losing energy every time. So we're now starting to uh, look at designs in an electrical sense where we're uh, distributing DC power through the building rather than AC, get rid of those losses, get energy efficiency through that, um, which, is, which is a great thing. Codes and standards kind of get in the way because you, it's not the norm way to do it. But we're trying to trying to break down those barriers because, as you know, a lot of phone systems now it's uh, the power power over Ethernet. So you get communication and power through that that source. So um, we're trying to develop those things that are practical because you know the the technology industry, the consumer industry, is way ahead when it comes to those items, and we're trying to almost make our buildings catch up with that and then and move move forward. Canal. Um, how is Google using new technologies to increase worker productivity? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, <clears throat> uh, okay, so let me try to see if I can configure that answer to you know the bigger group. Uh, so just by the show of hands, if I can know um, three categories. Um, by the show of hands, are you in architecture or related services? Okay, so decent group. In building. So, like general contractor or all subs, associate services, okay? And how about services that support, like including real estate, that support this industry? Uh, by the show of hands? Okay. So, there are a lot of people in services. So, okay. So, let's take uh, um, engineering first uh, or architecture first. Think about the workplaces that you were in before. Everybody used to get cubicles. Uh, sorry, my. I've lost my voice today. So um, everybody used to get cubicles before, right? It, that was a norm. Then what happened? Then open workspaces came into picture. Um, depends on what you are in, either sales, marketing, or engineering. Sometimes open workspaces you know, works best for you. But what happens when either if you're a coder who loves silence or who likes his own zone, or say sales, you necessarily don't want everybody to know what you're talking on the phone because that's just so sort of sensitive, right? Uh, how about construction? There are some deals made which rather be behind closed doors. So that workspace which you're building does not necessarily cater one for all. So what's the solution? Is there one? Because you know, doors are doors, windows are windows, and walls are walls. You, you cannot just reconfigure them, right? Uh, now, Workspace 2.0, where we are going is we want just like how you're able to do your, um, you know those moving tables uh, like you have at home, 
We just take that table, we put it here, start working here. Take that rolling table, put it in the kitchen, put your desk, and start working there. That's sort of the technology where we are thinking that we want to build a cluster of cubes where we built it today here, and this new group loves collaboration. They are, they are just into meetings every day. We put those in. Day two, another team moves in, and they are all individual coders. What do we do? We change the chairs, which are sort of um, Star Trek chairs, like huge, covering. You cannot see the another person working next to it. And you take it, and you reconfigure those stations where four people are facing like back to each other, like sitting like this. And imagine Matt sitting, facing his back, the other guy. So it's like you can we have to think about innovative ways how we can give people what suits best for their team. Because at the end of the day, what really matters is productivity. So now imagine your services, uh, for example, carpets. Uh, you're in a carpet store, so carpets. You have to make those things, you know, uh, engineer, like pick up like those two by twos, which I saw. Brilliant. Pick up those two by twos, pick in another space, put, put those two by twos, and make it working. So what what technology today wants or needs is solutions that are customized for that particular day, and then I can just bring it down with minor cost and move ahead. So I think that's the kind of technology we're looking at. And so are the services. Your services have to be sort of in sync with those technologies, be it mechanical, be it electrical, be it real estate. Same with real estate. We, we are getting this big construction team where they are saying, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna charge you about, uh, as you talked, about $100, about $100 a square foot, that's pretty less. $300 a square foot, that's, that's more market right now. Well, we don't want to win spend the thousand square foot. What if that space we don't need tomorrow? So that's the new that's the new age of thinking that we are all going to is how dynamic can you be, and what is the value for my dollar right now? Because tomorrow it might all change. So those are the we have all started going back to our drawing desks to think about those technologies and that kind of dynamic thinking. Great. I was going to ask just real quickly, do the nap pods at Google, do the people use them? Or those, have those helped with productivity? I thought you would bring that up in the question. So, That's the most famous question I get, is the nap pods. It's like, where are they? So for, when I started working for three months, I was looking for nap pods, and I could not find one. <laughs> they were like so much in demand. But, but, but um, the concept for nap pod was, was, was for the age group of 20 to 30 who hardly go home. And, and they, are, they, are, they are very, 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 uh, what's the right word for it? They are just so much in demand. Uh, we did a study on that. Uh, and and it were, people were able to increase their productivity, like with those power naps. Yeah. They were able to kind of do it and come back and they were increased by productivity by sort of their back to their 90 or the 100% the range. So it, the data, we're so a data does. company. The data says it works. Now, what tends to be your clients' goals, and how do they measure success? More and more, we see clients mapping their goals associated with um, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. Um, and we also see them um, starting to or um, are farther along in the path, especially large corporations, with um, uh, tracking, managing, measuring ESG metrics. 
Um, so whether their goals are in line with the UN Sustainable Development Goals or not is a different story, and whether they have and are tracking environmental, social, and governance metrics and are reporting on them, either one of those two things tends to be more and more of the drivers that we see um, clients at least referring to. Um, and then when it, it, it somehow needs to manifest um, inside of, of their real estate, um, outside of the sustainability space, right, which is obviously kind of our shtick, um, is, uh, is kind of really high performance, uber sustainably uh, built space. Um, the, the goals are often around, I mean, Canal's right here, but, but flexibility is, is, is ultimately the, the end goal. I think lowering the, um, the cost basis of construction, I think you mentioned a couple of numbers on a per square foot basis, but um, undoubtedly uh, in this current market environment, uh, basically everyone feels that they're overpaying for construction. Uh, which I might argue is a true statement, I might not. I mean, considering the, um, <clears throat> you know, our ability to uh, realize any sort of kind of, you know, increase in, in, the, in the wage growth in, in this, in, you know, entire country and certainly within their, you know, our construction trades labor market. I don't, I don't think it's actually exacerbated in any way. I think it's actually just catching up with, with the, uh, um, you know the, the income growth in other in other industries, but that's certainly a concern. Um, and then the other the other piece, which is undoubtedly a, a trend and a demand, is the health and wellness conversation, um, which is is outside of the environmental. Typically, at least outside of the environmental piece, it's not about energy efficiency. It's not about you know um, conservation and uh, you know of carbon in your supply chain. That, that's not what it's about. It's about occupant. Uh, mainly, at least the the occupancy phase of uh, projects uh, and how that uh, that experience to, to House Point, right, or 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 to Canal's point, um, how those occupants are experiencing that space. How does it affect productivity? You know, is there any toxicity in in the materials that are being provided to this to to the space? And furthermore. Um, whether it's in the material side of things or not, whether it's in just the basic kind of design and layout and format of the space, what are we doing in order to drive productivity and to drive health and wellness outcomes within our existing kind of human capital infrastructure, knowing that today, in today's economy, every single organization in the Fortune 500 and, and probably Fortune 5000 for that matter, are highly, highly human capital dependent, far more so than they have been in the past 40 years. And that does not seem to be a trend that's, that seems to be slowing down, so. Great. How can you tell us about the tower in PNC in Pittsburgh, which is the greenest high rise in the world, is my understanding, and kind of what challenge you face with that building? I think if we can get a rendering of it on the screen as well, awesome. Yeah, I think the challenge was that that, that goal there. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think it's a project where, uh, you know, we had to step back and define what green meant. Um, I think it's, uh, it's obviously uh, uh, loaded in terms of uh, if you ask someone, I think everybody has a different point of view on it. Um, so we looked at it very much from, obviously, from an energy consumption standpoint, but we focused also very much on the people side of it. So there were... We had um, three big buckets that we were um, categorizing our goals with. So one was energy, one was the people and uh, experience, and the one was the engagement with the community to make sure that this building wasn't an, uh, an island to itself, but it was something that would enhance the city that was in. Um, I think for us, the one you know, the challenge is always um, 
you know, I, I, it's a remarkably um, easy project. It was kind of an odd way to say it because it was, you had a very enlightened client, a very enlightened organization. It was one where you could tell everything, uh, everything from the CEO down to real estate, they all bought into this goal. And so everything we brought back to them in terms of why we were using certain technologies uh, really um, made those decisions easy. So um, one thing that I'm, I think from a um, experience standpoint, you know, I think it's, you know, we were one of the things that we, uh, wanted to fight against a lot was to not overload it with technology. You know, we toured a lot of buildings around the world, and I think we were in Germany once, and it was a building that, uh, you know, you could go in, had all the bells and whistles, right? You could press a button, the building did something else, press another button, the building did something else. And it got to a point where I think during the demo, the guy who was um, running the demo uh, pressed the wrong button, and, you know, <laughs> Windows open, papers flew everywhere, and you realize, you know what? You know, at some time, you know, technology is really about trying to make it simpler for people. So for us, it was all about, you know what? Maybe if you could make it more seamless, integrated, more intuitive, that's really what we're after here. So what we did for the building was really build in a lot of manual control because I think it's too easy for a. a, a a building that's overloaded with technology for the occupants to just assume that the building is doing all the work in terms of saving energy. And I thought for the design team, I think it was really important for us to, for the occupants to understand that they are very much a part of the performance of the building itself, that it's not just all automatic. So one of the examples is this is a double skin facade. So what you're seeing on the upper right is the on a passive day where um, the, outer, uh, uh, the outer facade opens up for the natural ventilation to open. But on the inner facade, which I don't have a photo here, but we have manual um, sliding doors there. And that was really done on purpose. We had a choice of making that all automated, but we made it manual just because um, people had to know when to be able to open the, um, the door and they had to know how to close the door. I mean, we were talking as a design group at some point, has society gotten to a point where people just don't know it's a good day out there and that they can open the, you know? And we say things like, hey, let's step outside for some fresh air. It's so weird, right? I mean, so we want to bring back some, you know, some notion that of uh, a building that is maybe rooted in just simplicity. So maybe. Grant, can you share your thoughts on AIA 2030 and the commitment to carbon neutral buildings? Yeah, so, so for, for, the user, for those of you who don't know, um, AIA 2030 is a challenge to developers, architects, engineers, um, our community basically to, to look at getting towards carbon neutral buildings by 2030. Um, What's great about the challenge is it started a number of years ago and it's, it builds up over time. So um, starting like 60% reduction in, in carbon f uh, and then 70, 80, 90 to, to, to in 2030 being uh, you know carbon neutral. And, and also what's great about it is it's not energy focused as it's carbon focused. And that's really making it a game changer when it comes to climate change, which is good because energy is part of that, but it's not the full story. Um, so it's a great mechanism and tool. What's also great about it by setting a goal over a long period of time, um, becomes more realistic, it becomes more of an opportunity for us to develop as an industry together. Um, when you get really uh, 
big changes in any uh, building code or, or energy code that can happen instantly, the market can't handle that. It, it goes through a pace where uh, people are trying new things, people don't really know how to, design teams are having to kind of react in a way that's difficult for developers because they're looking at um, cost performers that they want to, to, to build a building for a certain amount of money and, and when that changes fast and rapid on them, it's difficult for them to adjust to, to the real estate cost. So what's good about the, the challenge is that it is building that over time. Um, one of the concerns I have about it has been the progress and they're uh, slightly behind in where it wants to be in terms of meeting the challenge. Um, it's, it's difficult um, to, to make uh, house building is great in the sense that it's, it's, it's you know saving so much energy, so much carbon. But then you take a building maybe downtown San Francisco. It's really hard to get to the point where you would consider a building carbon neutral. Some of the things that make up that would be uh, where you get your power from in terms of you know it w certainly not carbon free where we're getting our electricity from. Um, also, how we design the building. Um, in a you know tight real estate market to be efficient but cost effective, and then when you think about something like San Francisco, you have a, a way of doing that would be PVs, uh, wind technologies, other technologies that could be a benefit. It's hard to do that. You have a lot of overshadowing. Uh, you have a lot of opportunity where you lose daylight to the building, which can help with energy consumption, therefore carbon. So I think we really need to get further on as a community of, of together rather than project specific and think about how we're going to achieve it for different communities. Um, the building you see here is a great example of it, but then you, you transpose that into a, a shorter building in a downtown location. You have a different set of challenges. You have a different set of uh, indoor air quality and uh, how, you, how you work with that. So uh, it's not a one-size solution fits all, and I think that's where the industry's kind of stalled to some, some extent. What is good is that codes are developing to the point where it's forcing us to keep thinking, keep pushing forward, but uh, we're getting closer to that deadline and we need to make, make more improvements. Great. Um, starting with you, Grant, and I'll go down to each of the panelists. Um, what advice would you impart to young leaders entering your respective fields? Um, I was actually t talking to somebody about this before. Is um, One of the things I've seen, uh, I wouldn't class myself as old yet, but getting, getting older, is um, a bit of a change in how when I came into the industry, I, was, I went into a, to a firm and I wanted to learn with that firm, grow with some people, get mentorship, and uh, and grow my knowledge and skill set, uh, and and try it out in projects. Um, with the millennial generation, it's it's uh, it's a bit tougher to to kind of stick in that same career path or with the same company or kind of uh, you know grow your knowledge. There's always the opportunities there to to move and expand and jump around. So it's kind of getting that balance. That is good, but it's also about building networks like that this event's about and about building your knowledge so that you can be influential in what we do. Um, a lot of us have have moved companies, but have taken a lot of that knowledge and and um, and mentorship and really. Uh, moved our careers forward because of that mentorship. So I think, I think that's important and think about that in career, career terms as well is really important. Uh, so I guess it's a very timely uh, question because <laughs> I have to give myself some advice, but maybe I am the old one on the panel here too. Um, so I, I think it's been, I've only been in the, uh, the career uh, and profession for 20 years. And it's, you know, in sp for architecture, that's actually a pretty short span. You know, I, I think um, 
you know, if I, if there are days I wake up, I do feel like I feel the 20 years, but at the same time, it's incredible how quickly it's changed. And I think that one of the challenges that we have as designers, you know, young or old, I think is just the, um, how technology has transformed our uh, industry. You know, I think, uh, for example, I think there's just maybe, um, I th you know, as a designer, you know, it's not like design is a nine to five job. You know, design inspiration happens at, at any given time. And there was a time early in my career, I think the, the profession and or maybe the lack of technology allowed us to have time to really think about ideas, gestate on ideas and, and really come up with something great. And now the cycle's a lot quicker. And I think it's something where, and more and more so, clients, everyone else, want to be part of that process too. And so that's, and I think that's great. You know, it's all about that collaborative environment. However, at the same time, it's just um, how can we produce great things and great ideas, think about challenges that Grant's talking about, how can we create carbon neutral environments those, you know, it, it, you need a bit of time. So I think it's that balance um, of that. Um, I think it's, I think as a young person coming in, um, I think you have to just make sure that you love this profession. Um, you can't, um, especially in architecture, um, it will chew you up. Yeah, whatever, spit you out, whatever, right? But it is, I wouldn't be in it if I hadn't, if I don't truly love it. And just the impact that one can have on people is just really a very humbling thing. And I think that's probably why we're all here and doing what we do. So remind yourself of that all the time. Probably have a different opinion than... <laughs> um. It came, I come from a very independent mindset, and I said I was a um, professional ski racer before this as a career, which is a highly independent sport. So my philosophy on, on you know, an advice at least is, um, is one where I, you know, a lot of self-reliance, basically. Um, and so when I started, you know, here in San Francisco, it was, it was, it was just, it was, it was full on, right? It was, it was 110% all the time. And, um, I wouldn't necessarily say that that's my advice, but I was just looking over Justin's computer earlier today, and it is a Thomas Edison quote that said something like, opportunity is masked as hard work, and it's there for those who seek it, or something like that. Um, I don't know the exact quote, and I'm, I'm probably... It's close. It's close. Do, you, do you know it? Off the top? It's long There you go. Well, well said, right? And and so I think that you know the millennial generation, and I'm still technically part of that, um, uh, often uh, mistakes the idea because of the transparency of information that we now have, right? And we see, uh, we have much more kind of both visual and literal context into what success looks like with others, right? Friends of ours, you know, via whatever social media platform. Um, or certainly, uh, you know, success stories or, or whatnot that end up getting, you know, kind of posted and, and, and kind of reposted, that it's somehow easy. And for the vast majority of us, it, it just straight up isn't. It's called hard work. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's my major piece of advice is buck in 110% to your jobs and your careers. 100, definitely here, lo love what you do and know, know what you love it, because if you don't love it, then you're never gonna have that, 
right? And and we we internally at least at, at Stoke, um, work ethic is 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 the the most um, you know outside of a, a couple of other kind of EQ type um, you know emotional quotient type type uh, personality traits that we look for. Work ethic is number one. Now work ethic does not mean work hard all the time, which is kind of my <laughs> it's what is what I what I fail at sometimes, right? But it means the capacity to work very hard when needed. And I think to your point about architecture, that's why we all kind of laughed up here. It's like, you need that capacity. If you don't, you will, you will probably not succeed in that industry. Um, and uh, I think just the other, the other pieces just have an absolute thirst for knowledge. I love reading and learning, always on, always reading stuff from a variety of different sources. Um, it can only uh, increase your, your capacity. Yeah. Well, um Definitely when you say things like that, you feel old. It's like you've seen it all, you've done it all, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, this is great. Uh, I feel much like how it's like, um, cannot imagine I'm giving advice because I'm always thirsty for advice. I'm always looking for advice. And I'll pass on what they told me when I first started in the construction industry as a young engineer going on job sites. Um, uh, and it was from very strange a Googler. Uh, who was in the industry for about 30 years, he said, never ever shave your facial hair. <laughs> if you do, nobody will take you seriously. Keep it on. <laughs> and, and, and that's what he said. And for women, he said, well, just have a tint of gray. So that somehow that is, is showing, uh, uh, um, you know, knowledge and, and wisdom and wealth. But anyways, that's, that's just a joke. But uh, uh, it, it was funny. I took it seriously and... and it took me a while to grow some facial hair, but about since six months, people were like, oh man, this guy seems he knows things. And, and you, you'll see the difference. But anyways, that's, that's generic advice. But as young leaders, right, uh, going to the serious note, as young leaders, uh, everything what these gentlemen said totally applies. But I, when I was going in the industry, I was constantly sort of, you know, watching interviews from Steve Jobs, uh, Larry and Sergey, and um, um, you know, always looking at these people like with like awe. It's like okay, uh, and everybody. And now uh, Travis uh, from Uber, uh, who I have the pleasure to meet with and work with. Uh, if you if you see what 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 they always say is, is they they really really believe in not doing what everybody's doing. That's what they really believe in. So as a young leader, you have to have to think out of the box. If you know that this is the way how the industry is doing, always try to think, obviously, do, do what they're doing, but always at the back of your mind say, how can I make it better? Well, you, well the best time, I'm sure everybody has a, a terrible, terrible commute time going home and coming to work. It's, it's just the way that we are in the Bay Area. You have 45 minutes, give or take, average commute time from your home to work, and work to home. If, if for an hour and a half you can think every day, what can I do different? What is that that would add value and change? Uh, that was your ESP, if you will, your, your unique selling point. You know, if you can develop that, there won't be any stopping you. Obviously, you'll fail. It's a given. You, you fail, fail, fail. But after a while, if you see most people who have actually gone up positions, they have just failed too many times so that they know how not to fail. And how not to fail is just success. So that's, that's sort of my recipe. Awesome. Well, we have some time right now to open this up to the audience for any questions. Anyone? Back? I have a question. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think that um, I kind of, ha if there was one kind of tenet of sustainability that frustrates me the most, it's the volume of waste in our, in our industry. It's actually the reason I got in, involved in, in the industry as well. I kept on cutting the ends off of two by fours and, and ripping sheetrock and was, uh, was a bit perplexed by the amount of waste that just kind of seemed to kind of went into the to the waste bin but um, to, to answer your question uh, I th I truly believe that in the next 10 to 20 years we will see a massive shift from overhead <coughs> systems to underfloor systems um, and I think that will facilitate and accommodate a completely different level of modularity in everything from furniture systems to lighting systems to um, you know power distribution systems uh, obviously heating and cooling and whatnot um, I actually think that this is probably as good of a question for just about anyone up here as it is me um, but personally the economics if you look at a full building's life cycle to your point there uh, of doing uh, a, a UFAD or, or under, underfloor um, distribution systems in general um, makes far more sense over building's life cycle. And, and the Salesforce Tower is is now you know will be the most iconic you know large large skyscraper we have in the in the um, in the city and, and does have a um, an underfloor uh, distribution system which took a long time for the developers to get over the idea that that was potentially where the market was shifting and of course the you know, there's still some cost barriers to that and whatnot, but I actually think that these two would probably be as as good at answering that question or, or better. Yeah, I mean, sure. Uh, there's, um, we've actually got a picture of one of my projects, or one of the projects PE did, it was um, Rocky Mountain Institute in Boulder, and uh, simplicity is almost the way to answer that question and from a, a mechanical standpoint. On that particular building, which is this one on the top uh, right there, um, we heat and cool the space to um, a very mild background temperature, and then everybody has provided with uh, a heated and cooled chair to some extent. There's a, a heat element in the chair, and then there's like a fan in the chair. And basically, we're basically taking a space that you could, you know, you're not putting a lot of energy into, it, and then you're making the personal environment work. So thinking a bit modular when somebody moves around or goes to a conference room and you maybe have conference rooms that are a better temperature that kind of thing but then in the open plan area you control your own temperature and even things like what Google are doing as well it's, it's about almost simplicity for time it's like how do I build something out that then is easily changed or has the minor amount of change um, and I think that's the way to look at it uh, maybe five ten years ago buildings were, were were overly complicated, like I was saying. We, we lots of controls, lots of gadgets, to the point where uh, if you want to move something, it's it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. Whereas uh, the industry's moved forward so much that we need to simplicity. And even the buildings that we're in these days, with the real estate in San Francisco and, and the Bay Area, there's a lot of big tech companies in old buildings that are for seven or eight years and, and they have to be able to evolve in that seven or eight year period. So again, simplicity is really what that comes down to. I want to say one more thing just about the future where I think so. We're seeing more and more distributed, distributed systems, um, especially with electrification. And what I think will happen was that we'll have you know, battery packs or power packs attached to a lot of devices, which will allow the mobility uh, of tons of different things. Um, and uh, and our, we've worked uh, with some folks on designing 
you know, kind of large table formats where there would be collaboration and multiple monitors and whatever else about integrating a power system into the table and not so. Um, you know, think out whatever another maybe 10, 15 years or so what, what obviously what test is happening in the advancement of the battery world. I, I can't imagine we won't have micro battery, you know, packs basically attached to a ton of different devices with their own workstations. Yeah, in, integrated wireless networks and everything. Any questions? Yeah, um, this is, I mean, you've mentioned a lot of kind of initiatives in terms of new building design, right? PNC Tower, the Innovation Center with Rocky Mountain Institute. Um, what, like, what's your vision, though? I mean, a lot of our existing building stock is not sustainable. It's not, um, you know, forward-thinking. It's not designed for employee wellness. Like, what, what are some ways that you envision that being changed, and, and, and like, who is that coming from? From my side, um, uh, we're, we're, there's a lot of older building stock out there where we're we're doing a lot of retrofit and refurbishment of that. And, and one good thing about the Bay Area when that is that there are a lot of clients who are willing to spend money on their employees. They want wellness. They want uh, that well-being, comfort, productivity. They understand the dynamic of how that works with with good building design. So when you have that, you you have old buildings that that. Uh, clients are putting money into, they don't even own those buildings, but they're putting money in because of the employee and what they want to do in terms of productivity. So that's that works great. Um, one of the challenges we have is when we don't, when that uh, when when clients move into older buildings, they're not energy efficient. Uh, you've also got to scale your approach. You've got to say, we're not going to make this the most efficient building, but how can we make incremental steps? How can we make it slightly better? Um, uh, but like Matt was saying earlier, not focus only on energy or carbon, but think about productivity and well-being because that's going to pay off for the client much more to some extent as an organisation. So I've seen a lot of movement in that sense. Google are one where you know fresh air, uh, filtration of air, those kind of things are really important to them because they understand that that you know you're going to be in work a long time. You're going to have an environment that you want to be happy being in. I could talk about it. Uh, don't need the mic, thank you. Yeah, you need the mic for the podcast. Oh, it's a podcast? Man, that's pressure. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, think about uh, Bay Area. Like, think about uh, uh, the microeconomy that we live in, right? How much place is there for to do new construction? You know, it seems pretty saturated to me, unless we bring something down. So now, what you what our thinking has to evolve is, is, or let me put it this way, how our marketing needs to evolve. How we sell the place to your users is the bottom line. Um, so you have to define principles. Principles uh, that we are trying to define is, you know, good air quality, um, sustainable architecture, and the third is, uh, there's a, a loose term called biophilia. It's a big firm, so it seems like everybody's shaking their head, so good. So it's how connected you are with the nature, you know, bringing that outside nature inside, right? So some of the research that we did showed that um, if you are in a building for a longer time, you sort of lose your consciousness, your sanity, because uh, that environment is still, and, and it seems that humans were not built for still environments. We are always meant to move, to look at things, to touch, to feel, right? So what they said was that 
roofs and walls, uh, they matter, matter to uh, sort of the technical experts like, oh, energy and, you know, sort of sustainability, how much, uh, you know, uh, uh, how cold or how hot you can be in, right? But for users, for, for people who are going to come in, what matters are these fundamental design principles? If, if, if we can make you feel with the terms of air quality, having, you've heard about living building challenge, how you can make your buildings living and breathing would define how the architecture goes from here on is because majority of the square footage that we have is all existing. And we have to figure out a way, lead, uh, take anything of how to make our, our buildings uh, more sustainable, not by bringing them down, but, but by enhancing those, those certain features, that's really what the user wants. Because what the user can see is what we can see. They cannot see what's on the roof. They cannot see what, what, what walls are made up of, but what, what your environment is. And that's what we have to concentrate on changing. And that's how we'll do both. We'll, we'll decrease the amount of money spent and also we'll increase uh, our, our FDOBs, our first day of businesses, because our, our timelines are short. Correct, very, very, very true. The ducks are the ducks. Um, your floor boxes are still your floor boxes, which come up through your uh, desks, and that's what we are used to, right? So that's why I said our, our target is not the engineering. We can do that. Our target is the thinking. Our target is the user who wants to have certain environment. Is the thinking is changing that. We have to go from wires to wireless for us to be able to come to that environment. And, and as Matt touched a little bit is that we have to have our furniture equipped. It's like move the furniture from there to there and all I need to do is take one plug just like your home furniture. Think about your home furniture when you're moving, you're not doing much, you're just taking the plug and putting inside your um, um, local outlet and that's it, powered on and going. And you probably already know Silicon Valley, majority of the uh, people now get laptops, right? All you need to do is, is sort of charge them. So you have to think about those inventing like charge ports. In Google, we don't have uh, desk lines. We have, everything is VOIP, voice over IP. So it's, it's sort of a cultural change. And if you can get the user, your client, to believe in that fundamental cultural change, then the engineering and the architecture will just follow. But it's, it's, it's selling to your user, hey, can you make this fundamental change um, easy for the 20 plus? hard for the 40 or the 50 plus like banks who are, who are you know, used to certain businesses. But with techs, I think techs are moving at a much faster pace. I think we have time for one or two more questions. Yeah, I think I was just saying from a, I think, I think that's the goal. I, mean, I, I think maybe from an engineering standpoint, it's very complicated, but I think it's just the, that human interface. When I talk about simplicity, it's about that human interface. So, I mean, I think when we talk about these smart buildings, ultimately it's gonna be invisible, right, to, to us when we go in, but obviously all the engineering behind it, it's gonna be super, super complicated. Um, you know, I think the, I don't know, I, this is where I probably date myself all the time, right? Because I think it's, uh, sometimes I, I just, um, you know, I, I don't know, if, I mean, this is a debate I have a lot with, uh, you know, uh, with my teams too, and with the clients is that, you know, how at some point, you know, are, are we gonna lose the human aspect of it, you know? 
And you know, ultimately, you you know, I I'm personally an architect. I'm I got into profession because I want to be design spaces that inspire people, right? And people that really elevate the human spirit. And it's great, you know. At some point, you can use technology to augment it, but at some point too, you can also see it also maybe going too far, where it ends up you lose that human aspect, and that's the part. Personally, I'm I'm. Uh, it's interesting to see how it evolves there and from that perspective. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's, I, I think it's uh, maybe it's the way to look at it, buildings are, it's all about, I, you hear a theme of flexibility. I think it's, it's not a one size fits all. You know, I think the, I know CEO NVIDIA always harps on the team, say, you know, don't design for average people. You know, there is no such thing as an average person. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, you like to work in one way, the other person's going to work in a totally different way, right? And so how do we create environments that, or organizations that allow that? And I think that's the thing that's, that's where I think technology enables all that and where, uh, you know, a building space that is ultimately very smart and can recognize that and allow and support that. I think that's that's really where I think it would be an incredible uh, place to be eventually. Something really short is, um, again, this technology. So we have the passion for technology, right? It's, um, could you, if I were to ask you this question three years ago, would you believe that all the things that your iPhone can do, if I told you three years ago, would you believe that it could do the same things? Probably not, right? The building technology is being the same way. Before, we had all the small players in the building technology. Now, it's changing. Those smaller companies are being acquired by bigger companies like Microsoft, you know, Google. Now, we're getting some real money in. Now, if you see within uh, the next four or five years, you will see such incredible, like Nest, self-learning thermostats. Nobody would have ever made that investment before, right? So what I'm saying is now, to our, our mind, since we haven't, since we haven't like, touched and felt the technology yet, we, we, we refuse to believe that simple technology can exist. But when we, when, I, when we look at our iPhone, we choose to believe that this technology can exist, which has GPS, which has web searching, which has talking. It just connects us to the world, right? I think the smart building is going there, is we are using such tremendous amount of energy, we are just wasting it. So if we do not go for that small building approach and we don't take it, we will still have, in, in, in bigger words, inefficient buildings with terms of waste, terms of energy. So it's like we have to have to get there, but we have to get there in a way that we bring along the users with us. I think that's sort of the only way I see it. So I think we have time for one last question. I have a question piggybacking off of your question, but these smart buildings where they kind of know who you are when you walk in, you scan your fingerprint, how do you, how do you deal with security issues in that sense? So in, in, my, in my business, we are long-term owners of office buildings, so we do a lot of TI work, and we also are very interested in making sure that our buildings stay extremely sustainable, and even trying to get kind of sustainability um, metrics from some of our some of our tenants, some of our tech tenants, that they are kind of scared to share that information because of because of security um, issues. Why, why don't you finish your? Well, I was, I was going to say you're like a walking advertisement for Apple. I was confused. I mean, I have a Google, I have a Google Pixel phone over there. Like, I feel like it's, like tw it's twice as good as an iPhone. And, and I just, I mean, you need to get with the times, man. I, 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 need, I do need to. That's good. 
uh, and, and the reason why I, uh, I should say Google, but I just didn't want to be uh, the marketing person here. <laughs> Uh, uh, so to answer your question in short, um, it's, it's, it's the age of data that we all have to probably give in, and big data being the big word, right? The more data you have, the more you can understand how we work, how uh, we program, and how we take back and we understand. So I understand that there are some data challenges, uh, for example, banks, uh, for example, um, um, you know, data centers. Uh, people are pretty protective about that. So in those cases, maybe the smart building has to be restricted to a point where those security features don't come in or the security features are just like the movies that you see in, right? Fingerprinting, eye scanning, that stuff, you know. Uh, but what does security mean for office buildings in, the, in, in downtown, right? So I, I'll give you an example. Uh, if you are a bigger company and, and, and as, as a service company, if you, if you were able to tell somebody, some big corp giant that, look, I have this device which could tell you how many people are in your building at a particular time. Look, as you said, uh, I think we had an example how you were hoteling. Uh, you were not built, you're not in that building so much. And look, we are, we are going over projections and we are you know, building more and more spaces because we think that there are not enough people or there are not enough spaces for people to work in. But if you tell me that I'm going to give you a technology which tells you exactly how many people are in, so you have a better headcount of your workplace, how invaluable is that to me? You see what I'm saying? So it's, you have a very broad question, but I would probably narrow it down to people for whom that data really matters. And I think for tech, that data really, really matters. Because to build one space, it's, as, as you know, Grant said, it's millions of dollars. And if we cannot spend it, you don't mind giving a few away to that new technology. So I have a quick question sort yep. of in summary. I'll yep. let you all go back to the bar. Uh, <laughs> really appreciate sort of the, the, the quality of professionalism, the level of experience that the panel's brought to, the, to, to our meeting tonight. You've got, you guys are great, uh, clearly sort of leaders in your industry. Uh, I, I have a loaded question because this is a promotion to get sort of new members into the young leaders here at Cornet. And, and so as I've listened to the dialogue tonight, there's been a tremendous focus on corporate real estate and really very little focus on sort of the rest of the world out there. So we're talking about a very small percentage of sort of what drives the built environment, right? And so I'm hoping you guys answer this question until it becomes a plug for me, but I'm not gonna require you to do so, all right? But, but it seems to me that, that if you wanna be in this business and you have a passion about it, the place to do it in terms of taking advantage of technology is in the corporate side of real estate because it's really the corporate users that are driving sort of all of these technologies to attract talent. And I don't see the same kind of motivation on the institutional investment and development side. So how you and Grant, I think straddle both of those worlds pretty much in your regular life. Matt, I think you probably have a foot in there as well. I know that you don't at Google. So I really sort of want to hear from you guys, is, is that a true statement uh, or am I just sort of drinking my own Kool-Aid? Um, I'll go quickly. Uh, Two things. One is that you know the in, investor uh, side of, of the table, the institutional capital side of, of of the equation here. You know, KRC with Kilroy is, is a good example uh, of someone in the audience of, of Cornet here uh, who's not an occupier and not a service provider, right? So, um, I would say that uh, credit tenants continues to still drive a majority of the investability in REITs and real estate as an asset class. 
Um, so, and th that all those credit tenants are all, you know, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 um, corporations. And I don't see the idea of the kind of corporation being a, a credit tenant going away anytime. Um, to answer one piece of your question. Um, the other piece of it is that we see actually more and more in our business at least, because we do straddle both of the corporate occupier side as well as the investor developer uh, world, I'd say that our business is probably split 50-50. Um, but we are more and more frequently getting um, asked now to develop, I mean, half of our projects now are zero energy, lead platinum, well platinum type buildings. Um, and I would say, I mean, we have a new client in San Diego that is uh, what, what would be considered a, a suburban sprawl, you know, mid-market, you know, mid-20s a square foot type of office space. And they're doing well platinum, lead platinum. <laughs> well, I know, but I, but I, but they're, they're doing that. Absolutely. Well, they, they needed to make the return because they need that credit tenant, right? So, I mean, the, the business model is actually highly integrated, right? I mean, it's, and you're right. It completely all revolves around the attraction and retention of talent in today's economy. So there's no way around it. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things I'm seeing with them. Um, corporate real estate is developers are um, we're very f focused on uh, return on investment and, and with construction costs and land costs and things in San Francisco that was, that was always a tough thing to, to take the next boundary with sustainability but there's not really a choice because when you look at the amount of buildings that are going up that are being taken by tech firms or, or, yeah, or even tech firms moving out law and, and financial firms, you kind of have to build your building with the flexibility for any any uh, any tenant. And um, what we are seeing now is an interesting thing where the banks and, and, and uh, institutional and law firms are starting to move slowly towards more of a tech environment. And to, exactly. Yeah. 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 And, and, and what's interesting about it is where would you have seen five, ten years ago, um, an open ceiling concept and, you know, uh, you know, uh, more, more about user friendly that, and, and, and I'm seeing a lot of that. So, but that's somewhat been uh, driven by the fact that the developers who are looking at these buildings are looking for that flexibility in that, in, in their design. And I think the one last thing I'll just add, I totally agree with that, but I think it is interesting to, you know, I have the privilege of traveling around the world working globally and especially traveling here in the U.S. I would say it's it all, it's really starting here. I mean, it's very interesting to go, uh, you know, I'm working in Washington, D.C. on projects and it's a totally different yeah. Totally different world, but you know, as one of the partners in our office always likes to stay, say, you know, spring always goes from west to east, you know, and so I think it's a, a very unique environment that we all live and work in here, and it's really cool to see, you know, we're at the, really at the forefront, and it's just it will be interesting to see how that all eventually trickles across and impacts the rest of the world. And it is, it is, it, it is. Uh, uh, to to quote your point. Uh, we came up with Tile 24 first, California, and now it's being implemented as it is in other states. So it's just, it's just you know, preaching to the choir is like, yeah, you invent, prove us it works, and then we start implementing in other states, and that's actually happening. Well, let's give a round of applause to all our panelists tonight. <laughs> as well as to our host tonight, uh, Interface.
Thank you so much for joining us. We hope that you found this as interesting as we did. Please feel free to share this with your colleagues and friends on social media and send any comments that you may have to us so that we can incorporate it for the next podcast. Anyone who's interested in joining the Northern California Cornet chapter or the Young Leaders Group, which is for people who are under 35, please visit our website.